I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, your neighborhood-friendly pediatric inf- infectious disease and this is doctor pra- and researcher. Oh, Daniel, you finished, did I? Santosh here, your and pediatric pra- infectious disease man. doc and Using researcher. Using the bristles of medicine to paint a masterpiece of your dreams through the radio waves. Oh. Right? Oh. I have my sensitive sides too, you know. <laughs> Good. Well, that's because uh, <laughs> you've been eating the paint chips of medicine. <laughs> <laughs> which You're are metaphorical only listening audience uh, yeah so uh in this latter half of our season we've been focusing on a little bit more further afield or lesser known or appreciated aspects of medicine whether it's exploring the world of sideshow or the science of flavor i thought another fun interesting thing to take a look at would be we've always talked about the science of medicine. Now let's talk about the art of medicine. Absolutely. Or more specifically, um, medicine. Medicine being described as an art is a very accurate description because the fact is, in spite of like there are a lot of things we do that are very fairly rigid, guideline based, things that we know are right, things that we know are wrong. And we all get pretty much the same medical training in that stuff. And in spite of that, we all practice things so differently. And so it's only apt that we describe medicine as an art to describe the nuances and the subtle changes and that only an individual can really bring that can make medicine their own. Ah, but Praz, today 
We bring our wonderful listeners a beautiful M. Night Shyamalan Lani type of twist. What a twist! Where we, yeah, <laughs> or a J.J. Abrams or a George you know, R. R. Martin twist. You know, if you suck, that's a really that's a twist with penises. In in this case, when Josh was you know doing the double talk right at the beginning, there, I think he was actually trying to get us. To try to use huh. our diagnostic skills on I'm actual pieces of art. This. How about that? Go on. Indeed, I was in fact uh. actually alluding to artistic. <laughs> uh, uh. Twist. <laughs> Briefly, I'm going to tell you why we're doing this, and this will hopefully be the beginning of a series. As I encourage all of you listening at home to tweet or Facebook or however you want to contact us. Uh, whatever pieces of art you'd like us to lend a critical eye to, whether it's just your favorites or things like that. But, you know, they have to have people send me a picture of a dog. They're adorable, but I'm not a vet. (laughs) Let's get into it. And the reason is more and more medical schools are now actually starting to teach art and art history-like classes to improve the physical diagnostic skills of their students. In a way, we're a bit behind on this, right? So I've got, you know, a cousin who's a dentist. And in order to work in dentistry, to apply for dental school and everything, she had to show scientific ability. But because they do things like sculpting veneers and caps and stuff, she also had to show some sort of artistic ability. Uh, This was something that I don't know if you guys had anything, but nobody asked to see my portfolio when I came into my med school interviews. Yeah, no, it was definitely one of the more neglected aspects of our life. Um, I feel like creativity wasn't the most um, wasn't the most uh, encouraged. Or come on, Pros, <laughs> you and I did physiology masterpiece yeah. theater together. What are you talking about? And you, sir, Santosh, no. okay, great. Ran, helped produce an entire variety yeah, show. Don't tell me you Sever- didn't get cultural. <laughs> Man, we convinced the president of our university to sing Rainbow Connection. It's true, though, but it's not always part of the actual, like, the didactic curriculum. It's not like someone actually put us in a class and be like, hey, this is where, like, you know, medicine and art intersect. Well, to give you an example, in one session, students will scrutinize the painting John Singer Sargent's El Haleo. A large painting that portrays mm-hmm. a dancer in motion. And I'm going to mm-hmm. take a moment and open myself up to what I know are going to be the inevitable jokes. I'm aware that I am doing an almost exclusively visual, visually linked episode <laughs> in an audio <laughs> medium. And, <laughs> and I will be including links to the paintings or at least some yes. of them. I encourage you to Google image search and the goal will be as a special treat. We will try and get this released as a YouTube, YouTube <laughs> sometime during the break. Beautiful might be a stretch. You know, kind of discuss our stuff as the slideshow goes by and maybe even show you guys our beautiful, beautiful faces. Oh my God, I have to shave. <laughs> so as what? I was saying, <laughs> in one session, students will scrutinize John Singer Sargent's El Haleo, a painting of a dancer in motion. And then afterward, they examine patients or actors with gait issues to look Mm. at their balance, stance, and step. And in a granted internal study of the school, they showed that the course made about students who took the course had about a 38% 
higher ability to observe on visual skill examinations than those who did. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, grabbing, a, you know, like a painting example of a real neurological disease and then merging it right with, you know, human subject. One, That's really a different fantastic. school uh, has a class where the first time they go, they do exercises where they're not allowed to look at the center of a painting. And that's to focus your exam skills on the periphery and the small details. So afterwards, a student said when she walks into a patient room, she looks around. Does she see cigarettes popping out of yeah, the purse, essentially, cards right? and flowers? Is she alone? Is the makeup hastily applied? A lot of peripheral things that you don't notice when you're just zoomed in on one part of somebody. It's almost like we're detectives. Dun, dun, dun. Because sometimes <laughs> some crimes go slipping through the cracks. <laughs> okay, You're first not off, Darkwing Doc. Stop it. But without <laughs> further ado, well, maybe a little ado, just ado. Of course. Uh -huh. Colorblindness, because you're all probably thinking that's the most obvious one. How does colorblindness affect art painting? Are there any famous artists who are colorblind? In that's fact, true. one of them... They interviewed him as well as did a study on several colorblind artists who were willing to volunteer and found that really, for the most part, being colorblind does not affect their ability to paint or register color in the so, slightest. One example is Australian artist Clifton Pugh, who can readily <laughs> claim to the title of well-known artist. So I know you guys may not know a lot of art history, but he is a three-time of the Archibald Everybody. Prize for Portraiture. <laughs> He's represented in a lot of national galleries, and he even won a bronze medal for painting at the Olympics. Ooh. Wait, wait, what? There's paint. I knew Ooh. you were going to mention that. There is not, like, athletic painting. Is there athletic painting? Did you say painting on a diving board? No. <laughs> no, I was imagining, like, you know, like the javelin throw, but it's a giant paintbrush. <laughs> no. <laughs> I will allow you all a moment to search Australian Clifton Pugh, P-U-G-H. Huh. Now, this is a gentleman who is colorblind. <laughs> all right. That's some beautiful so painting. So, to him, okay, so yeah. these are, traditionally, these many are reds would appear paintings. brown. And they, but you can see yeah. in his panorama uh -huh. a question. Many, many red, reddish-brown tones distinctly different from a tan sure. brown cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this is most colors. He didn't just mush colors together, basically. Now, what uh, may I ask uh, my he had dear friend? The more common and sex linked. What his red and green was kind of mushed or mashed together. For the first four decades, nineteen twelve to nineteen fifty two, there were Olympic medals in painting, sculpture, architecture, literature and music alongside mm -hmm. the athletic competitions. Wow. So it was real. <laughs> I, I just thought there's no sense. If there's athletic painting, I want in. Over 40, over 40 years, they awarded 151 medals to original works in the fine arts. And that only stopped. And that was because the original IOC coordinator uh, Baron Pierre de Coubertin wanted, he, he was raised and educated classically. So he felt a true Olympian was someone who was athletic as well as skilled in music and literature. You had to be culturally as well as 
physically. Oh, neat. Arts Olympics. Although Dr. Praz here is a martial artist. Huh. Although that is now also an actual sport, too. You know, so this went on basically until (laughs) World War II. And then when they came back, the yeah. new president of the IOC was <laughs> got a, a guy named kinds of crossover Avery going Rundage, on. an American, who did not appreciate the arts, and he really just wanted amateur athletics. He wanted the Olympics to be completely pure, not swayed by money. And he felt he that artists rely on selling their work, and therefore winning an Olympic medal was basically a giant advertisement for them. So he completely eliminated the arts after the 1948 Games. And all the arts medals became invalidated. So they exist, but the elites no longer count them. Oh, oh well, that's so sad. I mean, this is this is an issue of, like, the, the idea of patronage, right? So, you know, in order to become a successful artist, someone has to pay for your work. But that's kind of unfair because, you know, modern athletics, those well, guys get paid. Well, half a century later, around 2004, 2005, the IOC started holding an official sport and art contest. So there's cultural games that take place outside of the competition and those winners do get cash prizes and the works are selected and displayed. So it still is part of it. It's just, I don't know. Is it more gratifying to get a boatload of money for a piece of art or to say, I want an Olympic medal for Hmm. painting? That's a very interesting quandary. Boatload of money, hands down. Marveling over the Clifton Pew. He's actually colorblind, but he has he beautiful mastery of color, distinguishes individual blues from each other to create gradients and all this other stuff. And I was like, you know, if if you say that like maybe he's not like Olympics, but this is like the arts he, like no, the Paralympic won, arts, he, right? He did not win a like Paralympic medal. He won an Olympic medal, a bronze, a yeah. bronze. But an yeah, Olympic medal in painting. Yeah. But this is this is just so, so cool. You know, because we have all been raised on these cooking shows, you know, like Chopped and MasterChef and all these things where it's like, I'm going to give you a, a pile of rusty nails, a summer goose, and this uh, textbook on mm. the cultural implications of Harry Potter literature in the 21st century. And they come back and it's like, a dessert. here's butterbeer <laughs> ice cream with sprinkles. I was like, <laughs> oh, wonderful, but you didn't incorporate the rusty nails. Like, is that what the art was like? Or <laughs> he just like threw a bunch of things like Time Star, it's now. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't. But it's so cool that he can distinguish gradients of colors between reds, blues, and everything and it's even cooler that he was able to do yeah. that you know during a participation of a competitive event awesome. and make hmm. such beautiful pieces there's going to be a little bit of a mix of both artists with medical conditions as well as the artists themselves is fine as far as we know but they are mm-hmm. painting you know their interpretation of people and sometimes intentionally sometimes accidentally diagnosing So let's start with Monet. He's a fairly big name. And audience, I will do my best to link. But what we are showing is first his bridge over a pond of water lilies painted in 1899. So there's a lot of pastels. And I'm not here to describe the emotions of the art. I'm sorry. I'm just... No, (laughs) you have pastels. This This was painted in the form of pointillism. 
Um, so, you know, this Monet, very, very famous for pointillistic technique where you just, you touched the tip of the brush to the canvas, put, 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 and those points together made the scene. But if you zoom in, put your face very close to the painting, you see the individual, instead of being strokes of the brush, they're mm. point, 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 point. It's absolutely beautiful. You know, creates a reflective scene and everything, but there's a fuzziness to it. So that was done yeah. in 1999. <laughs> I want you to scroll down to the painting immediately underneath it, which is the exact same location, that same footbridge over Lily's, but painted in 1922. Um, okay, now, well, it's certainly not organized. What? Okay, well, it's certainly not organized. I can still kind of trace the bridge. Praz, can you see it? Like the two curved shapes in the in the darker colors? A little bit, but I do see that. Um, there are more, it's more like splotches everywhere. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of it is random, like different colors, different spots, too much like contrasting everywhere. And Like know. if you went there at nighttime, right? Where there was just like shadows. And he did a little bit of emphasis with a lot of reds, actually, like almost like, you know, like the two burst open on him. Um, I I can't see any lilies at all. So I, like yeah, the, the colors the are area much, much darker rather than true pointillism. It's almost like more, more smears swatching. of paint. The strokes are much angrier and broad and everything has, you're right, a much more smudged quality. Now, if you had to guess... And, you know, didn't have the benefit of show notes. What condition uh-huh. or what medical condition would you think would represent <laughs> this abrupt change, you know, over his lifetime? Exact same location, two different times, vastly different style. Are And are we going like more psychiatric or physical? Yeah, I was thinking schizophrenia too. Yeah, yeah uh, there's... You know, it's almost like, you know, it's an emotional twist or, you know, a a loss of affect even. You know what I mean, Praz? Like where he had these contrasts between, you know, the the really heavily accents on the trees above and these beautiful pink lilies below and a clear picture of the bridge. And then all of a sudden everything's just mushed together. We should not have reliable diagnoses made from just looking at a painting. This is exactly why people need to be physically examined by doctors. So while this can improve our skills in general, please be aware all these things will do. Here's exactly why they're going to be wrong at least least half the time if we're Uh, on a hot streak. (laughs) So you two stone cold diagnosticians who keep in mind, in 1922, you're giving him a diagnosis of schizophrenia. You've now just condemned him to either <laughs> a lifetime in an asylum or a life on the street, where many artists, where many artists did end up. So the first picture, 1899, oh, uh, was 10 years I, I, before his diagnosis of cataracts. Yeah. A visual <sighs> disturbance. Yeah. Oh, cataracts. He explained to a reporter how the cataracts affected him. Oh, good. He says, I couldn't yeah, okay. paint light with the same accuracy. Reds were muddy. Pinks were pale and weak. And lower tones escaped me. So he felt that his quality of paintings uh, were 
being harmed by this medical condition. And his paintings did, in fact, as you saw, grow darker and darker until his cataracts, you know, completely obscured his vision. And in 1922, he had cataract surgery, had the lens of his right eye removed, and not only improved his color vision and some of his paintings, but may have given him a superpower, the ability to see ultraviolet light. By the way, that little, you know, kind of super ability to see ultraviolet light, it's in a little bit of question. It's not, you know, it's not perfectly understood if that actually happens. Turns out we have the photoreceptors for ultraviolet light in our retina. So we should be technically able to capture it but uh, the lens and the cornea at the front of our eye work together to filter out most UVA and B light so that it doesn't strike the retina because what would happen after that is that you'd blanch out your retina. You'd yes, basically blind yourself. So I think there are some like reports and stuff that people can see ultraviolet after their lenses have been taken out, but I think it might be in a bit of dispute. Yeah, guys, not everybody gets to turn into a mutant, but... I'm pretty sure that Monet developed that superpower, like reverse Cyclops. He could suck all the laser lights in. Yes, please do not expect to see ultraviolet light after cataract surgery. He shot solar solar beams filtered through a force lens. <laughs> That's completely different. Wait, wait. Did Cyclops shoot ultraviolet yeah. light? We're anyway. getting off tangent. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Praz. Guess which one of us is getting ready for Comic-Con? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> so, cataracts, as you mentioned, Santosh, they're often a progressive cl- cloudiness of the lens inside the eye, and it gives you blurred and dulled vision over the entire focusing surface, which you know you can't correct with glasses. They tend to be brown, and therefore, when light filters through them, As you said, color discrimination is lost. But if you look at his paintings he did after that period, they do start brightening up again, although he doesn't get all of that fine pointillistic detail back. I admit our first go at armchair diagnosing was a little disappointing. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm going to give you guys another shot because this is a famous sculpture we're going to talk about. Represented not only in its original form, but (laughs) painted uh, several times throughout the years. And that is Michelangelo's uh, Knight is the name of the sculpture. It is a marble figure on the tomb of Giuliano de' Medici, made uh, or who lived 1520 to 1534. So that's where the original sculpture is. And whether or not you like Renaissance era art, I think we can all agree there's a lot of breasts. Yes. Yes, lots of penises too. Here's the thing: there's a perception, uh, sure, but well, but there's also some of the diseases we have in the modern day new. are exclusively modern. Uh-huh. That you know, we invented all the diseases. Nobody else got to have a patent on them, except for maybe plague, or in rare cases, leprosy or things like that. But uh, it looks like breast cancer has been around for quite a while as well. But Knight, it's a marble statue as a female figure on the Medici Chapel in the church of San Lorenzo, Florence, Italy. Dude, this is so creepy. I mean, the woman's laying down there, but there's like, she's pulling up a sheet and there's a dude's head under the sheet. Yeah, so that's the sculpture. And what you are looking at is one one reinterpretation of that sculpture, the painting also called The Night by Michel de Rodolfo de 
del Girlandio, painted sometime between 1553 and 1555 based on that sculpture. And a little bit further down is also a painting called the Allegory of Fortitude, uh, which is, again, based on that same figure. Hmm. So I want you to take a look at those two figures and, you know, look at their breasts and tell me what you see. Well, okay, they're certainly asymmetrical. They clearly look different from each other. Um, I think it's most pronounced in the the top picture, the, the knight. Go for it, Press. I would say. Um, and one looks like a normal breast, whereas the other one looks um, almost puckered in and um, irregular, for lack of a better word. Yeah, that's that's puckering, right? That's where... You know, the tissues underneath the skin are matted down so that, you know, it almost looks like the tissues kind of, you know, stuck in on itself. And you are not the first ones to make these observations. And in fact, there have been a couple articles published on this, both in the New England Journal and the British Medical Journal. Periodically, this comes up within academic circles where folks look at this and say, this is a perfect example of a tumor. You know, you have locally advanced cancer in that breast there's an obvious large bulge to the to the breast contour medial to the nipple so there is a very telltale lump there's a swollen nipple areola complex along with the skin retraction that puckering and these findings do not appear in the right breast of the figure knight or if you look elsewhere in the medici chapel at dawn um who has two otherwise normal breasts, or any other depictions of women in works by Michelangelo, which means that a lot of scholars tend to agree this abnormal appearance is intentional. He And breast cancer was known at the time and diagnosable, even though it wasn't understood. You know, they might have been saying, well, you've got a infestation of demons and you need to pray X number of times a day as well as take these herbs. So Michelangelo, aside from being, you know, one of the best nunchuck artists in all of history. And a party dude. And a party dude. (laughs) And a party dude. Give me a break. (laughs) So he, he was so, I wouldn't say obsessed, but he was so careful about being true to life in his rendition of the model. Like when he was sculpting this thing out of, I'm guessing like marble or stone that, he followed the contour of this diseased breast of the of this of this cancer rather than sculpting you know like using his imagination and saying um something's wrong but i want to make it you know look normal he followed the contour of what his model had i'm glad you bring that up because it's important to note here It was culturally taboo at the time for upstanding women of the day to undress for a painter, which meant artists would either pay women of a certain sort to model for them, or they would uh, use Facebook deepfakes. They would use men as models and then just tack on breasts and a female head. What? What? No, that can't possibly be true. Everybody's naked in these things. That makes a lot of sense now, looking at these pictures. Well. Oh, oh, all right. So, 
So, but I mean, he's seen breast cancer before, plain and simple. He has. And again, it's not that he wouldn't have seen it. And there may, and this doesn't mean that no models did it. But in general, when you're talking about, oh, well, naturally his models did this, you have to be careful of making the assumptions that the models were actually nude. This was not a thing that young women did or even older women. Let's go back briefly to the allegory of fortitude. Again, you look at that same thing and you, you see some of those same features, a tumor that's broken through the skin evidence of swollen tissue and these features are consistent with an ulcerated necrotizing breast cancer maybe some lymphedema now both these paintings were made in the 16th century and interestingly do you know what else was going on at that time Uh, this is shakespeare (laughs) right yes there definitely was some shakespeare going on i think what josh is referring to is the uh, cultural um, enlightenment or renaissance Yeah, well, there was certainly an Enlightenment and Renaissance and many Shakespeare things caused breast uh, cancer? Renaissance <laughs> right on up, including breast tumor surgery. Some of the earliest breast tumor surgery was practiced by French surgeon Bartholomew Cabrol, who lived from 1529 to 1603, right in that period, oh. you know, when Michelangelo and the other painters who did these and the other artists who did these paintings were living. And this guy served at the court of King Henry IV and taught at the University of Montpellier, and he was one of the very first practitioners of mastectomy, the surgical removal of breasts. So Michelangelo could have simply decided, oh, this really cool medical thing is going on, and he often, I'm sure, may have attended anatomy or surgical theaters, or whatever the equivalent was, and decided he wanted to include it on his model. So there was a lot of uh, cut and pasting when it came to sculpture creation. It's they weren't always sitting around for a long time. Oh, that's interesting. Well, wait a minute. This surgery was going on without anesthesia. <laughs> yeah, that that didn't come for another couple of hundred years in its earliest forms. They probably just... Well, I, I, Praz, I don't think they had even ether around in the Renaissance, did they? Very true, yes. Uh, I think milk of poppy was the anesthetic of choice, or whatever alcohol they had. Anesthesia and pain control wasn't really of importance to the surgeons because they were performing these surgeries on women. No. <laughs> oh, that's so awful slash true. So wait a minute. So we had artists that were learning alongside surgeons you know how to how to see a a cancer in the breast and how to diagnose it and how to treat it with mastectomy many medical practitioners of the day had to be good artists because they were drawing their own textbooks and studies and many artists became de facto medical examiners by virtue of how closely they observed the human body Oh, God. So, I mean, this is like, you know, in the era of Grey's Anatomy, not the slutty TV show, but the actual, you know, the anatomical textbook, uh, you know, Grey's Anatomy. And so, yeah, and even, you know, his, you know, subsequent anatomists, uh, you know, like Netter that we learned from are all, so you know, drawn. About- you know, these guys were learning the human body by actually like, you know, putting it down on paper. So that makes so much sense. That's so, so cool. So we're going to talk about another one of the Impressionists, and that is Edward Degas. So he was a contemporary of Monet. Gentlemen, if you will look to your uh, link machine below, 
and we're going to do another comparison, and hopefully you'll be a little kinder to Degas than you were to Monet. So mm-hmm. the first painting we're going to look at is Edgar Degas's uh, painting Woman Combing Her Hair, painted in 1886. You pretty much did exactly what you're thinking of, audience. It's literally a woman combing her hair. Yeah, so it's a nude female with her back to the painter, her hair uh, pulled up above her in almost an inverted ponytail as she brings a brush uh, up through it. Um, Basically, a a young woman recently out of the bath. You can still see a towel draped around. Now, I want you to look down a little bit below to woman drying her hair, painted in 1905, a mere, what, Hmm. 20 years later, just about? Wow. Very markedly different. It's much more crude drawing, much rougher, I should say, in terms of like the strokes. And um, I mean, it's just yeah, not very fine tuned. Now, you'll notice it's not the same problem clearly that Monet had. You can still make out a clear figure in that second photo, but it almost looks like a series of harsh scratches or uh, nails scraping against it everything seems a much more rigid and almost stark with very harsh lines as opposed to soft blurriness admittedly uh, matters of vision in the eyes are something that my knowledge is fairly limited on um i mean we already mentioned cataracts this obviously isn't a cataract maybe a different part of the eye is affected like a, a retinal issue you can still see detail, which is a difference that you were not able to see Correct. in Definitely. that first painting. This is a gradual loss of vision in the center of the retina, known yeah, as macular degeneration. But Degas still had his peripheral vision, so if he looked at something out of the corner of his eye where it would be blurry and out of focus, he could still paint it, almost like you would see in that first picture, uh, although with much more detail than you'd see it being blurry. Whereas if you look at something straight on, it'd be like you saw in that second picture. You would have to guess at what was in the center of your sight. Whereas his earliest paintings are done with a lot of precision and detailed, and his latter works become blurrier and more and more unfocused, and then they become scratchy. And people actually most appreciate him for his looseness of style. So he really had this, when he was blurry or just getting this macular degeneration, was some of his mm. most popular. Wow, really? So it actually became more popular when he had the crudeness. We got enough time for at least one more painting uh, before we call an end to yay. this first Medicine of Art episode. Yay. Let's wander down to the next picture in our gallery. And the portrait itself is called An Old Woman by the Flemish artist Quintin Massis, M-A-S-S-Y-S. Uh, And this was also done in 1513. So the 1500s was a popular time for art. A real renaissance, if you will. A real candy of the mind. The painting is also referred to as the Ugly Duchess. Would you Um, care to tell us why? Okay, well, uh, you know, I'm not really sure how I should say this without offending at least half our viewers. Old woman kind of looks like an ogre. I'm not a woman! (laughs) Looks like a rather serious piece of... Uh, beer goggles, for lack of a better word. If you were physically diagnosing this person, they came into your office dressed like this, didn't really have a lot of specific complaints, poor historian, 
What okay. kind of things are you uh, noticing? A lot of wrinkles. A very odd facial structure. Uh, a very oblong face, I should say, um, with a very prominent mouth, like a large distance between the nose and the mouth. Um, rather broad forehead. She seems to have very large hands and a receding hairline. It almost looked like a Neanderthal or like a early ancestor of man uh, type of picture of being. I'm glad you brought up sort of that Neanderthal-like appearance. So let's go into it. And, and you're right. There's definitely a very clear enlargement of the skull area. And Max almost masculine or more elderly features where the the woman definitely appears older than her stated age. She has the face of an 82-year-old man named huh. Murray. Um, also some very large ears and a large chin. And this is one of the most popular paintings of, uh, of the... It's one of the most popular paintings in the National Gallery. Really? And uh, it inspired one of the characters from Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures really? in Wonderland. The queen? Spot on. my No, the white <laughs> rabbit. Why? Yeah. Um, yes, the queen of hearts. Looking at this, medical research shows that the woman depicted by Massis, and he was a 15th century painter from Antwerp, uh, medical literature basically has shown to speculate that this woman was a victim of Paget's disease. Yes. Oh, the bone disease. Yeah. So in her case, you can see it's enlarged her jawbones, extended the upper lip and pushed the nose up the face, as well as affected her hands, eye sockets, foreheads. And, you know, she's got sort of that rheumatoidish type curve. So what can you tell me about Paget's All disease? Right, well, what do you know about it? First, just a, a basic observation. I think um, disease itself is about bone absorption and reabsorption, bone remodeling, essentially, where your skeleton basically changes its basic structure over the course of uh, years to become wider or thinner. Um, the classic um, example we'd always get was that um, men would come in and they would say that their fingers are too wide, that their wedding rings don't fit them anymore. Or back in the 1920s, they're their derby hats would no longer fit them anymore because the size of their head and the bone had now grown considerably. Those are the big things I remember about it. Yeah, that's that actually covers sort of the most important parts. Um, it's named after Sir James Paget, Paget, uh -huh. whichever, the British surgeon who first described it. And it wasn't described until the late 19th century. So it was clearly on display right here in this portrait. But... We didn't formally uh, codify it until late, late in the game. And usually it's much more commonly affects the lower body, like huh. the pelvis and okay. the femur. When it does affect the skull, you're right. It's normally just the cranium. So whoever this woman is, she was suffering from a particularly rare form. Because you would expect to see, if you had Paget's disease, sort of a bowing of the legs, a waddling gait, um, a lot of arthritic changes like pain and inflammation of the joints and a lot of repeated fractures. Um, whereas a lot of people who have the cranial version as is depicted in this painting will develop hearing loss 
as well as loss of vision and occasionally hydrocephalus, a buildup of too much spinal fluid in the brain, or yeah. at least in the skull. Not Sounds the like it could be quite dangerous. Or it could be very mild. The problem is it's really difficult to tell from a painting where she certainly may have a mild degree of hearing loss, but as for vision on hydrocephalus, may not be. Uh, she may have suffered no more than just, you know, a damaged oh, yeah, pituitary but, um, gland. Yeah, you're right. Excessive uh, growth hormone. So that's kind of first art history lesson for you. And, and hopefully it's helped you to become a little more observant and descriptive. And the next time you look at a patient as you're granted <laughs> rendering them unconscious. Best part of my day. You will take a, <laughs> you'll take a closer look. And I know we also talked about a few artists who uh, did not have medical conditions, but I introduced you to you were unfamiliar with. So why don't you go back and pull up a Hieronymus Bosch uh, painting and describe it to me, just as if they were All coming right, into an see. examining room. Pick a figure. Okay. And then just let me know which one. So let's see. Random Hieronymus Bosch painting. All right. Let's see this one. The Magician. That looks like a good enough one to look at. Magnify all the way. Okay. Um, so, the magician, magician. Okay. So, there seem to be two main characters in this, surrounded by a crowd. The first woman seems to be, a, I guess, colloquially, a hunchback, which is, um, she has considerable um, kyphosis of her middle back. Um, additionally, she has very flat facial features. Um, her arms tend to be very long. One could almost say that they might be um, a little bit marfanoid. She looks very tall, but very thin. Um, and the guy on the other side, who appears to be the title character, the magician himself, I notice he has very, very spindly fingers, like they're abnormally thin and curved um very prominent nose and a very and i recognize this all the time a very anterior um jawline or short jaw to thyroid ratio i imagine this man would be a somewhat challenging airway i love it you're like oh tubing him would be such a pain so I'm going to add on to your observations of these two. So you're right. It's clearly a performer in a top hat and sort of red medieval cloak-like figures performing some sort of conjuring trick to an astonished crowd. Now, I can't <laughs> comment on the ease or difficulty with which you would intubate him. But I will say, if you look at the audience, the first thing that jumps out at you is this, you're right, this very bent-backed, elderly appearing woman i don't think she's marfanoid because a quick glance at the okay. other folks around her show that same length of face and sure. feature i think that's just that artist's style for the painting uh she also has a very small mouth and and pinched sort of features which i think is what he's using to depict a mature age but you're right her back is bent almost at a 90 degree angle which indicates she has had poor posture for years or may have suffered mm. from more likely malnutrition and resultant osteoporosis. Now, a quick glance at the surrounding folks show that uh, a few of them likely suffer from anemia, such as the woman in the red hat who is shading her face, but also far more pale than every other character in the 
painting, even the ones wearing white around their heads. So she seems very pale. And the woman next to her looking up at the sky has a broken nose. You know, again, a a brief trip through the National Gallery with a diagnostician's eye or a detective's eye may make a what could be an otherwise quick or boring visit to the Art Institute, for those of you not into those sorts of things, a lot more fun. Go ahead, play detective, send us your best examples, and Mm -hmm. if we pick yours, and I promise, if you send it, we'll pick it, we will diagnose it, on an upcoming episode <laughs> of Medicine of the Arts, or whatever I end up calling this. <laughs> so uh, that's it. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to the sources we used to research. I will include links to the photos and paintings where I can, where I can't. Hopefully you can just Google image search. And as promised, sometime a, during our off season, first we'll make a YouTube version of this podcast. Whoa. Or episode. Nice. That will be our first YouTube video. Uh, the channel's been up, but it has not been updated in a while. So... This show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. Our theme music is by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.